Uh, this is Toku Yes brand manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Carl Swenson. Carl has represented the United States 72 times in World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic competitions. His best international result, result was fifth place in the 2003 World Championship 50K skate in Val de Femme, Italy. Carl, a three-time Olympian, also anchored the U.S. relay team to historic fifth place at the Salt Lake City Games in 2002. Carl won 11 individual U.S. National Nordic Ski Championships and had numerous top international races to go along with dominating the U.S. Marathon Series circuit for years. Additionally, Carl was a professional mountain bike racer, representing the U.S. five times at World Championships, winning a silver medal in the Pan Am Games in 1999 and winning the U.S. National Short Track Championship in 2000. Carl, Carl retired from international ski, ski racing in the spring of 2006. He then attended the University of Utah Law School, graduating in 2009. Carl also served on the USADA and U.S. Ski and Snowboard Board of Directors in 2007, as well as was a FIS Athletes Representative 2004 to 2006. Today, Carl lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with his wife, Katie, and daughter, Quinn, who is five. Carl has worked as the public defender in Stratford County since 2009. So, Carl, thank you very much for being with me uh, here today and taking the time to do this interview. We've known each other and have been friends since, I guess, you're about 14 years old. This is a nice opportunity for me to catch up and reconnect with you. Good to see you, Ian. <laughs> Can you please tell us where you were born and how and when you started skiing? Um, I was born out in Corvallis, Oregon, actually. A lot of people think I was, uh, you know, been in New Hampshire my whole life, but no. Um, Corvallis, Oregon. So we started skiing up in um, like the Bend area and like uh, Sanian Pass, a little kind of podunk place, uh, Hoodoo Ski Bowl. Um, so we ski I started skiing in Oregon, and then we moved to New Hampshire when I started fifth grade, and that's where I started skiing more, more regularly. Cool. And when did you do your first race? Uh, that would have been in New Hampshire... I was probably I was in sixth grade or something. I did some local race out in Whitaker Woods, which is like the town woods that they groom right out behind our house in North Conway. Did you do Bill Coke League or some kind of junior racing after that? Yep, I got started in, in the Bill Coke League. They didn't have much of a, a league race series in uh, in New Hampshire at the point at that time. So I did a lot of races in, in Maine. Um, and they, they had a big thriving Bill Coke League in, in the Maine Little, all the little main ski clubs had those. And I remember driving to those uh, with my brother for a bunch of them. Yep. Um, <clears throat> the first time I, I remember meeting you was, I think, in Lake Placid at kind of an REG camp. I think you were 14 or 15. And after that, the next winter, we used to test skis together before races and talk smack about who had the faster skis. Remember, remember that? I vaguely uh, remember that. Yep. <laughs> and even then, I remember you were an extremely good glider. Did someone teach you especially well how to have a feel for skis and, and how to be such a good glider? Or was that an innate talent? Um, I don't know. Maybe I was just kind of, I don't know, naturally, you know, looking for the easiest way or something like that. Um, I remember picking up... Um, skating early like marathon skating before the other kids were, were skating and not using wax early on and I'm honestly not sure how or why I, I picked it up I was never 
as strong a classic skier. And I don't know if that's because I started skating earlier or that just it just came more naturally to me. Um, but uh, I, I remember liking to, to skate in the marathon skate before uh, before most of the other kids started. Did you have any mentors uh, when you were a junior that kind of helped you along and get you to a pretty good level? Um, well, I was always like the, the littlest kid. And I remember the youngest kid on the team, um, like when I was racing for the, the high school team, I was in junior high. And in the pictures, it's really funny because I look like this little squirt and everybody else is probably twice, twice my size. So there was always other bigger, stronger, faster kids for me to, to chase around. And I think um, it just made a difference. And I had the, the ski trails right out in my backyard. So we'd just go race around little loops, that, you know, the loop with the biggest downhill uh, again and again. And I think that's, that's where I got competitive and started getting, you know, getting really into going fast. So it's interesting. You, you said you always skied the biggest loop, uh, the loop with the biggest downhill. Yeah, that's a different mentality. A lot of people have. I have the same mentality. I love racing the downhills. And uh, but yep. can you talk about that? Because a lot of people wouldn't ski the loop with the biggest downhill because it means to get the biggest uphill. But you were you were doing it because of the reward of the downhill charge the downhill. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we would you know, we would have fun. You know, we'd all get to the top and then race down. Exactly. And I don't remember thinking that much about getting to the top, but I do remember distinctly making sure we all started together at the top and then we'd try to take each other out or take a better line or, or you know, somehow get past somebody while we were going down the hills. And, and that was always really fun when I was a kid. That's something I did whenever I could do distance skis with other people, which was usually when I was a junior and then a little bit college and after, but, you know, when you do a distance ski, you do the Chinese downhill thing and you race the downhills. If you have a, a course, it's got, you know, you can't do that in a golf course necessarily, but that's something I always really enjoyed. And I think it really helped my downhill skills. I've always been, you and I, I think are the two of the best downhillers around period for decades. And I think that really contributed to that. What do you think? Yeah, I, that's true. I can remember like checking out courses and knowing that I needed to take it easy because it was a day before the race or something. So I'd ski the uphills as, as slow and easy as I could, and then I'd race the downhills. So you kind of get that speed feeling, and you, you figure out how to take all the downhill corners fast. Um, maybe, maybe that was a good approach. I, I don't think I thought that much about it. Well, another thing about that is when you're inspecting a course and you ski the downhill slowly, you don't have a clue what the best line is. Because when you're going fast, it's a whole different line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to this day, it drives me nuts when people don't get into a tuck on the downhill. And maybe it looks silly, but I just like, that was all we did. You go as fast as you could down the hills. <laughs> so are you still doing that? Or are you doing the old snowplow tuck now? Oh, uh, no, no. I still try to go as fast as I can down the hills. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when we were at Dartmouth together, you, Andrew Sven, and I often roomed together at races. Oftentimes, the room that we had was equipped with two queen beds and a cot. We never shared beds. Instead, what we always did was we had a system where the person that finished last out of the three of us would be relegated to the cot. <laughs> and I think that was a really fun game. And um, yeah. it shouldn't be motivating. You know, we should have plenty of motivation other than that. But there was a lot of trash talking. And, um, yeah. and uh, I think it was a lot of fun. Outside of the amazing opportunity to hang out with Svenner and me, what attracted, that was a joke, what attracted you to going to and skiing for Dartmouth? Uh, you know, I don't think I thought that much about it because I don't know, at that age, you apply to what, you know, whatever everybody says is the best school. And then 
I got in. So that was great. And, you know, I had a good ski team. Um, and I knew some of the guys there like you. I don't know if I knew Spenner at that point. Uh, Brad Bates was there. I knew him. Um, yeah, you know, I was just all for it. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, when you graduated, anything you want to say about Dartmouth and your time there and how did it help your development a lot? Because you came out of there skiing really fast. It, it, it did. Somehow I ended up going to Dartmouth and coming out of there really focused on ski racing, which sounds a little strange. Um, uh, but that's where I really got focused on, on ski racing. I took, I took one year off uh, when I made the junior world team so I could go out and race in Europe and, and not miss a, a winter of, of competing in NCAAs. So I took my time getting through there, but I loved NCAA racing. I got in four years of NCAA racing and um, had John Morton my first year there when you were there. And then uh, Ruff Patterson for the, for the years after that. We had a great group there. Yeah. When you graduated from Dartmouth, I think in the spring of 1993, probably. Uh, Dartmouth, uh, 93. Yeah. Yep. Back then there were no club programs to coach and support an athlete from the college to the elite level. Despite this, you made the 1994 Olympic team and finished 45th in the 30 K skate. What did you do to navigate this transition successfully? Uh, I was able to get in some, some European racing, doing some NORAMs. I remember applying for some grants and, and, and going out there. So there were opportunities to, to get in some, uh, some racing. Spring series was a pretty competitive um, series of races that were kind of a little bit a step above the, the normal college racing. Um, for sure. But uh, to me, the hard part is the spring, summer and fall where you're, you mm -hmm. know, the champions are made in the summer. And did you have a training group? Did you have anyone that you're working with as a coach or were you pretty much doing what so many of us were doing is, you know, just living, working part-time or even full-time and just, just slogging it out by yourself. You know, how, how'd you navigate that first year? Uh, first year out of college? Yeah. I, I think my brother was living out in Colorado and I think I, I was out in, um, in Telluride, Colorado, which is pretty high altitude in, in the summer. And I started, that's when I started mountain bike racing because he was a pro uh, bike racer. And I worked in a bakery in, in Telluride uh, that had like some weird hours, like afternoons and real early mornings. And I was able to, to do some, a um, lot of running uh, in the mountains, bounding with poles. And I started uh, mountain bike racing and you know, that, that worked for me. See, this is kind of what I'm getting at. In this day and age, that's unheard of. In this day <laughs> and age, a talented college racer graduates and then picks one of the five or six major elite programs in the country and then trains in a training group with, with uh, coaches and assistant coaches and assistant assistant coaches and right. lactate testing and treadmills and, and right. a very specific kind of pathway to, to get there. And here you are, you're like, yeah, I mountain bike race in the summer, did some pole hill bounding. And I was living at super high altitude coming from the, from zero to living up there is usually a recipe for disaster, you know? And, um, and somehow you were made, you were able to finish 45th in the Olympics, which in that era is an outstanding result because you weren't competing against anything close to a clean field. 
So uh, that's an interesting thing for people to consider in this day and age. Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't I hadn't thought about that way, but but you're right. I mean, you also got to remember, I don't I don't think I scored World Cup points until I was 30. So so maybe I could have sped things up a little bit. Um, but on the other hand, I think that it kept me in the sport and kept me competitive for that long because I had that whole mountain biking side where I did have a pretty structured race program uh, and I got in a ton of intensity and, and race experience and I enjoyed it. And I also came with a sense of um, independence in that I actually started making money as an athlete. And that was all from the, the mountain bike side. Um, but I think that was motivating and gave me some, some longevity because I wasn't just scrounging, you know, working at the bakery and washing dishes or something like that. Um, so I think it, it actually helped keep me in it longer. Cool. Well, let's, we'll get back to the cycling in a bit. I want to ask you some more ski questions. And this is another one that I think people might find interesting. There were some years, I think most of between 95 and 2000, the U.S. ski team participated in almost zero World Cups. There were very, very few World Cups the U.S. ski team participated in, very different from today's <clears throat> habit. We had nobody in the red group, and there was no money. So it made for some very competitive domestic racing, and you dominated pretty much in that domestic race. And we started with the Yoko Fist Series back then, and you did really well on those, and you won practically every marathon you entered for a decade. Um, and I think it's interesting if you think about it, just a couple of years later, with, with almost zero World Cup racing, we had the pre-Olympic World Cup at Soldier Hollow, and the Americans absolutely crushed it. We had tons of incredible results. And then in the 2002 Olympic Games, again, the Americans had a historic Olympic Games, especially the men. And then in 2003, the year after in Val de Femme, once again, you and Chris Freeman absolutely crushed it. How do you explain, first off, the great results in 2001, 2002, and 2003 in these international races after almost zero international competitions for the U.S. ski team for about five years? I mean, I know there were some, some World Cup racing. I mean, I remember getting beat up pretty, pretty bad, but I remember like Justin Wadsworth and Mark, Marcus Nash and I going over and, and doing some racing. Um, but you're right. Those were, those were, it was pretty tough showing up in Europe. The, the ski team would generally go over for three weeks and then you go home. And then yep. the first week you just got here, you're jet lagged. And the second week can go better. And the third week's going to go really well. That's when you peak. And they say, after that, you're stale and we don't have any money anyway. So let's go home. <laughs> That's how it generally worked was like a three week period. And you never did world cup one period. Generally you do us nationals and tryouts and then you do the three week period and then you'd usually come home. And then sometimes it was a spring three weeks again, but it was totally different from this day and age. And normally if you don't have that competition, you know, everyone kind of sinks, but 2001, 2002 and 2003, the three years after that were phenomenal in terms of the results for the men, especially. It's, it's interesting to think about. You know, no, it is. It, it is interesting. I, and it definitely felt more like we were we were visitors over there for short stints, which was tough. Although we did do that um, season where we lived out of, of Sweden in, in, uh, in Östersund. And I remember I, I really liked that. And I also did get the opportunity to travel and do some um, a couple of world loppets, which was a really good experience uh, for me. 
because remember Mulig was doing those in those days mm -hmm. and Botvinov. Um, and there were always some really good, some pretty big guns out there on the, the world loppet, but it wasn't a like a deep stacked field. But the few guys up front there racing the world loppets were uh, were real competitive. And Stevano um, Barco, yeah, Italian to real fast guys. Doing those mass start races with with those guys, the longer races, that that gave me some some confidence and some good experience. So what about home cooking? I, I think traditionally, except for two thousand three. The Americans seem to do real well in North America. Um, 2001, the pre-Olympics is a great example of that. The Salt Lake Olympics was a great example. If, you, if I look at people's historic results, usually not always, but usually their best results were in some Canadian World Cup, which, okay, in the spring, they oftentimes have less uh, competitive fields. But, but regardless, Americans generally do much better in North America. And 2001 and 2002 are prime examples of that. You want to talk about home cooking and, and how that may or may not have helped you specifically? Me specifically, it, it didn't seem to help. I, I remember it being just really disappointed at, 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 you know, the individual results that I got at the, at 2002, um, you know, at our home Olympics um, and then having some fantastic races early, early in Scandinavia, coming back to Canada yep. and, um, and, and, and struggling. And it, it was, it was, uh, disappointing I, I mean i think it i mean it, i think maybe it, it hurts the europeans more than it, it helps us in a sense it was foreign for them to come over race at a little bit of altitude uh at venues they weren't accustomed to so we had a little bit more comfort over here um you know factors but we just don't have that much data to look at right you got yeah <laughs> once in a generation, a World Cup or an Olympics in, uh, in the U.S. Yeah, but it is fascinating. For sure, when the Europeans come over here for the, Olymp for the Olympics and also the pre-Olympic, they're bitching and moaning about getting a cold on the plane. They're bitching and moaning about the time change. Yeah. Um, and then even the food. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that, that throws them way out of whack. And we're thinking, man, they're so delicate. But, I mean, we, we got pretty good. I think as a nation at, at traveling over there and they're horrible at it because half the time they're just jumping in their car and going to a race, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about Salt Lake. I know your individual results were not nearly the, the rest of the men did extremely well. Marcus got sick, but, but uh, AJ was 21st. Weaver was 16. I think yeah. Chris Freeman was 15. I know Wadsworth was eight, just going off memory in the pre-Olympic games. Mm -hmm. And um, there were some, oh, John Bauer was eight Bauer, and 12, yeah. I think. I mean, just some incredible results. And, you know, it's, it's a little odd that you didn't have the result, but your, your relay was really good. Let's talk about the relay. The first thing I wanted to mention about it, first off, you all were fifth, which is a historic result. And you were, I'm thinking about a second out of fourth. Yeah, I was running for fourth with um, Austria, Hoffman. Yeah, and uh, we all know that they um, they weren't running on bread and water, so you know that makes an even you know a more historic result because um, we know, especially at those exact games, they left a bunch of paraphernalia behind in their in their hotel, and they were pretty famous for it. But but regardless, um, so AJ Andrew Johnson was twenty first at the Olympics, and Patrick Weaver was sixteenth at the Olympics. This is before the relay. And neither of them were selected for the relay team. That's how strong our relay team was. 
Yeah. You, Wadsworth, Bauer, and Freeman. That's an incredible team. And we're talking as a fifth and a sixth, you're looking at Weaver and AJ, who are top 20 in the world. In fact, someone I was talking to, I think it was Weaver, was saying he was talking to a Norwegian coach, and the Norwegian coach said, good thing there really is not six people, because if it was, I don't think anyone beat the Americans. It's pretty cool. What a strong team. It, so for me, it wasn't a, a fluke that you all got fifth. When you have that kind of depth, that's what happens. Yeah, we beat some some good teams there. I mean, look back, we beat we beat Russia, we beat Sweden, we beat Finland. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I tell mean, us about the relay, if you don't mind. <laughs> um, I, I think I remember I skied the final leg, and I was skiing around with Pat Weaver. We were kind of watching it together. I'm getting getting warmed up. And, you know, we're, you know, Freeman, I think, scrambled, or was it Bauer? And then Bauer, those two guys had, had great legs. And then and Pat Weaver was just looking at me like, I think he was getting more nervous than I was. It's like, oh boy, <laughs> you're going to get tagged off. You're going to be in like fourth place. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it, it, that was amazing. Um, and you're right. And unfortunately, that, that opportunity hasn't come around again for a while. And I mean, we were racing in the United States. There was a lot of cheering for you, especially on that anchor leg. That must yeah. have been pretty magical. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Um, you know, big crowds. Um, I still wish I'd gone around to the other side of Hoffman, so I would have been closer to the crowd when I was going. But <laughs> get a little more um, adrenaline. Yeah, though that was amazing, and I remember um, watching the crowds like when when Becky Scott was sprinting down the, the final stretch where she got what turned into a gold medal, obviously. But uh, yeah, those were, that was amazing having big crowds like that. Yeah. So a year later, you finished an amazing fifth in the 50K skate in Val de Femme at the World Championships. This was an individual start 50K skate. You broke a pole early in the race and later, um, and had to ski with just one pole for quite a while. Later, you estimated that you lost about 40 seconds. Regardless, you fished an amazing fifth place and 40 seconds off the bronze medal. Can you tell us about that day and that week, actually? Because you had an incredible week as well. Yeah, we were we were having a, a just the whole team was having a great week. Uh, I remember Chris Freeman was, I can't remember how close, was like a second from a, a medal. It was, was 1.3. 1.3 seconds. It was ridiculously yeah. close. And then we were right in it with the, the pack uh, for the, the pursuit as well. Um, so I knew I was going going great. And it was that kind of just beautiful weather where it was freezing up every night, sunny during the day, and the snow was just rock hard, consistent, fast. I had super fast skis. I was using the same skis. They were Johnny Spillane skis. Remember, he won the world championships, the gold medal there, uh, Nordic combined. And um, they were just these amazing skis that for whatever reason were just flying on that at that venue. So I got to use them for that race. I never saw the skis again. <laughs> so he lent them um, to you. He wasn't like, hey, Carl, I got a pair of skis. You want them? He, he, he got them back, I assume. Oh, yeah. No, I never saw him again. I got them yeah, for yeah. that race. And then and then the Nordic combined <laughs> crew took them right back. Uh, no, I mean, it was just uh, it was a great venue. It just just felt great the whole week we were there. Um, yeah, I wish we could uh, bottle that up somehow. <laughs> I think it's fair to say traditionally Val de Femme is not a gliders course because of all the, the steep, steep uphills. And then, you know, you just go cranking back down and then you're on your next. So it's interesting that you did. So obviously you're, you've always been a very good climber, but 
you're also an incredible glider, the best, one of the best in history. It's kind of odd that you did that well in Valdefemi. Do you think that was that course was perfect for you somehow, or do you think it was just good form, or what 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 made you excel there specifically, or it was uh, Johnny skis? Right. I mean, what was everything? You know, it was I had had great form, I had great skis, and it was that rock hard, um, fast snow that you could just jump on the ski and 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 glide a long ways. I could ride out those fast downhills you know, long ways. Um, it's a, it was a fun course, but you're right. There were some really long, fast downhills and then long climbs back up. Yeah, it probably hasn't changed much from what I've seen. No, I don't think they've changed the hills much. But I mean, traditionally, you've, you, I mean, you've obviously been really good at climbing, but you're really good at, at just gliding. You know, sections where other people aren't gliding as much and you're working less than they are. And then you can punch it later. And it's interesting you did so well there specifically. Yeah, I, I don't know that the course had that much to do with it. Probably the snow, the skis, and, and just having in good form. I, I think I I liked working the transitions as, as much as, as anybody. And I also liked working, I mean, I prefer a mass start race, but when you've got a multi-loop 50K, you're, you're, I was catching rides or I'd draft for a while and then I'd, then I'd you know, surge and drop people and then I'd kind of draft for a while, which was what led to the crash and breaking the pole. I caught up to a Russian and he was going pretty, pretty good. And I think he saw that it was an American and started hammering. So I just tucked in and skied behind him for a while. And we got to a long, fast downhill and I was sucking off his draft and I was going to come around and, and finally drop him. And somehow he staggered and veered off and took me out. And that's when we went down and I broke my pole. I don't think I caught him for five K's, but. Um, I'm, I'm going to say something that's not real, uh, have you noticed that that happens a lot with Russians for some reason? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. If, I've got a lot of hypotheses about it, but it seems like Russians crash a lot and cause a lot of crashes historically. Right. That would be my, my tip. Don't, don't bother drafting off the Russian. Just, just get by him. <laughs> <laughs> so also, well, um, what did that fifth place mean to you? I mean, you've been competing for many years in, there must have been some kind of validation. It must have been, you know, super rewarding to, to say, hey, I, I, I achieved this, you know? I mean, it's a big deal, huh? Sure. And of course, you know, at the time, you think, oh, all right, I've always known this. Now it's just going to be like this from here on out. But <laughs> Of course. Um, yeah, it was a, it's a great feeling to, uh, to just have great form, great skis, and put it all together. Yeah. So I can't remember, was the pursuit before or after the 50K? Usually the 50K is last, isn't it? I think it must. Yeah, I think the 50K was probably last. Yeah. So yep. so earlier in that week, you had a great race in the pursuit. You finished 11th. They called the double pursuit back then. It was two times 10K only. Yep. Um, and you finished 11th, and you were in a pack of about 20 and ended up just five seconds behind the eventual winner, Per Ellison. Five seconds out of the gold. Hmm. And the second American, because first Chris Freeman was just 1.3 out, I think it was. But it must have been a heck of a lot of fun. And uh, it must have got you salivating for the 50K. Oh, yeah. Because I knew, you know, for the 10K, I was just kind of hanging with the pack. I'd dangle off and catch back up, dangle off, catch back up. And then I knew going into the skate, all right, this is my chance to move up. And then, as I recall, I did throw in a little surge with about 
three or four Ks to go. I went up off the front for a little bit. And then I, I think my legs kind of seized up for that last long climb. But um, I knew I was feeling good at, during that one, too. Did you have, didn't have Johnny skis for that race, did you? You know, I was just wondering about that. I may not have. That might have been the difference right there. <laughs> right. He may have had those for that day. I, I, don't, I don't remember. <laughs> well, uh, I mentioned before you're a three-time Olympian, uh, but you did not make the team in 1998. Mm-hmm. And one thing that happened in 1980 is that because of that, you got to race the American Berkebiner. I know you wish you had made the games in 1998 and had a chance to compete there, but you won the Berkey, which I'm sure lessened the sting. Mm-hmm. How many Berkeys have you raced and what did winning the event mean to you? Uh, I bet I've done, I don't know, maybe 10, probably not more than that, but I've done a bunch of Berkeys. That is, it's a, that's a great event. Um, winning it was, it was a, it was a pretty big deal at the time. I don't think an American had won it for, a, for quite a while at that point. Um, it was always a handful of Europeans that would come over and, and take the top spots. And there were a few um, Austrians that were there that year. It wasn't a particularly stacked field or anything, but, and it was shortened because it was a bad snow year. So I didn't get to finish on main street uh, for that one. But um, I think it was a big deal. And it was great because I'd been getting a lot of support from uh, the factory team. Remember those days, Andy Gerlach, Subaru, and, uh, and it was great to, to, to do a win because that was a, a great venue for for them and for the sponsors to uh, for us to have a good race and we had a great team uh, with the factory team back then so that was that was really fun and that was a that was a great year I probably got to race more by not going over to Japan and racing Nagano than if I'd gone over there uh, obviously I, I was disappointed not to make the team but I just wasn't skiing that fast during the the trial period. And I got to do a bunch of um, marathons, um, which I just love traveling around doing those marathons. Plus it's, it's fun to win, you know, and I could win those marathons. That was, that was great. <laughs> so to my, from my perspective, every one of those marathons you were doing was over before it started. Did you not win a domestic marathon? But was there a non-national championship race that was a marathon, you know, all the, you did a lot of the marathons that you didn't win? Um, I'm sure, you know, I remember, um, I, was it Vordy won the, the Vasa? I did not win the, the Vasa. Maybe it was that same year too. And um, I mean, they were competitive races. I, I, I definitely had my success there, but I, that one in particular, I remember. Um, I'm sure somebody will think of some other ones. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure I, I remember Vordy winning one that you were at I know I got I got second at the Boulder Mountain Tour twice before I, I won it the, the next two years and I can't remember if it was like Ben Husaby or Marcus or, or Justin Wadsworth or those guys may have won the Boulder Mountain Tour a couple times when I was second or third mm. yep I remember doing the Boulder another time and it was over before it started as far as I'm concerned as soon as you made a move it was done you know everyone was racing for second you were a one heck of a glider, man, uh, and fit, you know, I mean, it, you know. Anyway, would you like to tell us about another memorable race from your career that we haven't talked about from any period of your life? Hmm. Well, you got me thinking about those old marathons, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, I, 
love to go up and do another Midwest marathon, like, you know, Bemidji or uh, in uh, Bawabek or, uh, or something like that. Um, I probably had some of my, uh, there was one year, it was, it was the World Cup and it was the, the March Ilonga was a classic World Cup. Um, I can't remember what year it was. And I think that was a 70K or 60 something K. It's a point to point. Again, it was is basically Val de Fien, and it was a classic race. And uh, and I had a horrible start, but I just kept moving up, moving up, and then it was a big pack all the way back down the valley. And then and then there's a big monster climb back up to the town. And it was my best World Cup classic race ever. I actually had one other top 15. But I remember getting 11th or 12th in a classic World Cup and thinking, well, that 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 shows I can classic ski. <laughs> Is that a cluster day? It must have been. It had seems to be. like you had your best race on cluster <laughs> day. Remember? Had to be a cluster day. Yeah. yeah. I, I did like cluster. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, let's talk about bike racing for a second. You bike raced on a professional level winning um, mountain bike silver at the Pan Am Games in 1999. And you won the U.S. National Short Track Championships in 2000. You also excelled in the Norbert National Series, winning quite a few races. I think you raced only for the U.S. team in Polo Sport, Polo RX. You know, it changed the name a couple of times. Is that right? Or did you race for anybody else? Oh, no, I raced for a few teams. I was with um, uh, a BMW Pro Flex for I, a couple of years. Okay. And then I was with... Um, uh, Katera was a, a sponsor for another couple of years. It was a Cadillac car. And then I was with the, with RLX, uh, Polo for my last four, four or five years. So did they give you one of those Kateras? No, they never, no. Not they even never a loaner? <laughs> that kind of rubs salt in you. You drive to the darn race in a Yugo and then you've got the Katera jersey, you know? Right, right, right. No, we, we did have, we had, we did have two Cadillac Escalades for the season to, uh, ah to tow the trailer and drive around in and which back then was, you know, those were pretty cool. Of course. That's great. So here's a question for you. Do you think you're more gifted as a cyclist or as a ski racer? <clears throat> you know, I think I ended up having more success as a ski racer, but probably just because I, I stuck with it longer and just had more opportunities with cycling. I think I would have had to have started earlier and, and, and focused on it year round. Uh, but uh, I, I like the way I was able to do both. Do you ever have a, I know you and Pete have been great friends. Did you ever have a rivalry with him on the bike? My brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we raced against each other uh, for a lot of years there. We trained a ton, really, you know, competitive training. Um, so we definitely had some real competitive uh, training uh, rides and adventures out there. That's for sure. But in terms of actually ending up head to head on, on mountain bikes, we never seemed to have our best days on the same days. I remember when he was just nailing it and getting the, getting the podium, I was usually having a terrible day and, and vice versa for some reason. So I don't remember dueling it out on the race day, but we did a lot of hard training together. Cool. Some people can't handle having two competition seasons. They get tired both physically and mentally. Like, for example, ski racers riding bikes in the summer. 
they do mm -hmm. all the bike race in the summer and then they're tired physically and mentally in the winter. Others need the stimulation of having two competition series um, seasons. Otherwise they get bored and stale. Can you please talk about this and why having two competition series seasons worked for you so well? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, well, it, I don't know if it, it was optimal results wise, um, but it kept me in it, as I, as I said, which was what allowed me to get the, the best results I could. Um, I think it, it helped me in the sense that I got some just real quality, hard workouts year round. I got the race experience, the travel experience. Um, I, and I do think dry land training, uh, you know, roller skiing, long summers of roller skiing can get pretty tedious and you see some injuries develop, uh, that sort of thing. I think it is, it is beneficial to mix it up, um, with some, some racing and some, some different venues, different, different people, you know, different coaches, uh, that sort of thing. It really can keep you mentally fresh and, uh, and also, you know, better prepared, better experience. What do you think about the idea? I'm just talking here, but this is what I think. And everyone's different, but the idea of if you race in the summer, yeah, you can get tired, but when you get tired, then you just, you prepare, you know, you recover from that race and get ready for the next race. So there's kind of an autumn uh, built-in governor to prevent yourself from overtraining because you'll see yourself overtraining immediately in the, in your results. Whereas yeah. if you're just out there slogging and out doing these long, long roller skis and, you know, training in the summer, then you don't have much of a feel for, because of course you're going to get tired. You're supposed to get tired. You don't have a feel for actually if you're declining in fitness overtraining, et cetera, or not responding to your training or not. Whereas I think if you're racing, you do, it's kind of built in. What do you think of that? I no, I like your thinking. I think, I think that sounds right. You're probably more at risk of overtraining and, and cooking yourself by training than you would by traveling and racing. And, and you see that, you know, people coming out of the, you know, the, the tour to ski, um, right. Sure, some people might be tired, but some people aren't racing well and they didn't do the tour to ski. Um, I, I think it's I think it's good. And you see guys bike racing that come out of the major tours and they'll go off and have amazing uh, races after that as well. Um, I think there's probably more of a risk in, in overtraining than there is over racing. And there's obviously a risk of, of overdoing it both ways. But um, I think for me, uh, probably... Um, overtraining was more of a, a problem than over racing. I agree yeah, for me too, but that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. A little later, you decided to stop riding professionally, just focus on ski racing. We just heard how well this was working for you. What was your rationale and how did it work out? Um, I think some of it was that my results in, in the mountain biking were getting it was getting more discouraging going to not getting enough world cup starts or starting world championships way back in the field. Um, in mountain biking, those world cup fields are, well, they're, they're really stacked in a lot of ways. And the way the grid is and, and the lineup is if you're not starting and you earn those start positions up front, um, it's tough to, to move up. Um, 
and uh, and I wasn't I wasn't doing that that great uh, towards the end uh, there mountain bike racing, and it and I was starting to get my best results ever as I was getting older in skiing, and it just made more sense to focus on on skiing. I I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but to me, you're supremely talented. Did you ever feel that one of the other your results came easier? In mountain biking or in, in um, skiing? Yeah, like like when I, I mountain bike raced for a while and I was horrible technically. And, and then I moved I moved up and got better and better and better as I kind of got used to it. But it, it made me appreciate skiing so much because I wasn't a natural, I was naturally natural on the bike, but I wasn't natural bike handler. And everything was, you know, Utah single track, you know. And so I would lose gobs of time on the descents and in like high speed single track through sagebrush and stuff like that. And I still got quite good. I was probably fifth or sixth in the Intermountain West for a little while. But um, it really made me appreciate skiing because it was so much easier for me to get results. And I was gifted skiing much more than how I was technically gifted on the bike. For you, it doesn't seem like you were, you were supremely gifted in both, but I'm curious what your opinion is about that. Yeah, I, I was jealous of those, the, the people who'd grown up as kids on like BMX bikes and stuff because they could just put the bike up in the air and put it down and, you know, hop over stuff uh, that I didn't have those kinds of skills. Um, you know, on the, on the given course, given day, I was able to, to be as good on the descending and technical stuff, but that was never going to be my, my strong point. I was a better climber. Um, I actually probably could have had as good or better results on the road. I did a fair amount of road racing. Um, and that, that's something that doesn't take the kind of skill that you got to develop from an early age, you know, pure climbing, just being competitive and having kind of, I guess, instincts for it. Um, I really liked the, the road racing and I did just some of the bigger domestic uh, road races, but that was really fun. Uh, and I could tell, if I'd focused on that, I could have, I could have done well, but I was not interested in, in going that route. <laughs> I think I was more talented, more suited for the road as well. And I had some decent races, but, but that's just, that's an interesting thing to consider for sure. In a mountain bike race was your opportunity to kick butt kind of a fire road climb. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, all those cross-country courses had had major climbs. I mean, long climbs when you compare it to any sort of a cross-country venue. So yeah, I could, I could, if I was going well, I could, I could, um, you know, do really well on the climbs and then recover and hold my own on the on the descents without losing time if it, if it was going well. I'm curious though, some of the climbs everywhere, you know, in in in, in real mountain bike courses, they're really technical. The climbs are technical. And I would lose time, even though I was a good climber, I would lose time on the technical climbs, but you put me in a fire road climb and I was pretty much the fastest guy out there in the Intermountain West. Like, but you put me in a technical climb where it's, you know, it's steeper and you get stuff to hop, hop over while you're going up this climb. I wasn't nearly as good, but on a fire road climb, I could kill it. And I was wondering if you had the same kind of, where you get in a section and a race was a fire road climb and you're like, okay, you know, <laughs> uh yeah i mean I, any climb i mean i could do the the, the technical kind of climbs I, I didn't have trouble with the technical descents the real tricky drops rocks mud uh i i really had to work to, to figure out how to to dial in those kind of descents but the climbing part 
uh, that did come pretty naturally, I think. Cool. Um, so 2001 Nordic Ski World Championships and the 2002 Olympic Games were both rocked by doping scandals that hit the highest levels of the sport. Most of his athletes knew that this was going on anyway, but to have so many favorites get nailed by new doping tests opened many eyes, although we knew that a lot of people were doping and never tested positive. Looking back, we know that our careers were during the time with probably the worst doping abuses with basically a free-for-all and no controls. How, how do you feel about that? Looking back, do you kind of feel like the joke was on you, you know? No, I don't. I mean, it's, it's frustrating because it, it doesn't ever seem to change. Um, but on the other hand, I know a lot of the people I was competing against were not doping. I mean, I know there were people who were doping too, but um, I don't, I never had the mentality that everybody's doping. You've got to dope to do well. You got to dope to win. And I think that's, that's really important. And it's, and it's true. It's valid. Mm-hmm. And as soon as somebody starts believing or thinking you've got to dope to compete or everybody's doping, well, I think that's the mindset that leads to, can lead to doping or to, or to quitting. So it's, it's very, it's very frustrating. And it's like beating your head against a brick wall. Cause you just read the headlines next month and there's going to be a new round of them. But um, you know, human nature is not going to change, but you got to know that there's people out there racing who aren't doping. And you know, the people I was around and, and with and knew uh, and respected, I, I don't think they were doping. Cool. Glad to hear. I competed in international cross country races in the mid to late eighties and then in biathlon in the early to mid nineties. I was not as talented as you, despite our early days of trash talking fun. <laughs> I think you were along with Andy Newell and Bill Coke, the most talented and gifted athlete that the U.S. men's cross country ski team has ever had. Would you like to reflect on how this was knowing that you might, well, you just did, um, but you were so talented. It seems to me in a clean, in a clean field, you would have had a number of podiums. That's just my opinion. It's not a healthy thing to think about, but now it's years later. Do you have an opinion about that? Um, I mean, I think if you look at, at, at Valda Femme at the, what was that? 2003. I think that was probably a clean race, uh, world championships because we just had, well, finished world championships, 2001, huge doping. Then you had 2002, Salt Lake Olympics, huge doping. Um, I think there was a, a backlash and a lot of national programs, I'd like to think, stopped like the, the big, <laughs> we all know that of course Russia started up again, but there was a period there uh, where, you know, the Russians were, were human, um, the Finns disappeared, the, the, the people who had been, you know, Mulek was, was out, um, the people and the Austrians were, they had been uncovered. They, they were serving sanctions and coaches got fired and stuff. Um, and, and I think the big programs weren't doping. So if you look at some of those snapshots, I think you do get a little picture of what it would have been like to be racing in clean fields. I mean, I think I was 20th or 21st at the 50K skate in Lati, 2001 World Championships and fifth in, um, in Val de Femme two years later. I probably was in about the same form uh, for, for those two races. I think it's interesting to think about 
I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but if you look at Germany back then and their results in the men's field, they had what at least three tour de ski and overall men's World Cup champions. And you look at them now, now they're clean. And you compare the results, you know, generally your top Germans in the around 20th now, and the second German might be in the 30s. And you compare that to Germany back then, there's a massive difference. And you got the same coaches, some of them have gotten older, but same training methods, the same everything. And you can say the same about the Italians, except for sprint. The Italians were very dominant in distance. Now they can't ski their way out of a paper bag, except for, I guess, I guess they have Di Fabiani's decent, but you know, it's a whole different landscape. And I don't think you can put your finger on any one difference except for that, personally. You know, it's a dangerous road to go down, though, just by... You're retired, so we can do this. If you're an active but, athlete, that's dangerous. It's horrible. Yeah. It, it is, but it, but it, but it shows the, the, just the pernicious effect of doping. You start suspecting people because of their results. And that, that's, that's terrible. It's, it's not fair to, to, um, to, to clean athletes who there's people who say, well, he had a good result. He must be doping, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it, and that's why it's so frustrating because yeah. I mean, what, what you got to do is, is be confident that you can race clean and, and be competitive. And there's going to be people out there racing clean as, as well. Um, and you hate it as an athlete because it sounds like it sounds like an excuse, right? It sounds like whining. So it's very hard as an athlete to start pointing fingers. Um, well, I think it's it, horrible for an athlete to even think about it. Yeah, I'm I'm only inter I'm only um, discussing with you because you're you're long since retired. Right, right. And my main point is simply to say I think you're incredibly talented, and I personally think in a clean field you would have had numerous World Cup podiums. That's just the only point I wanted to make, I wasn't trying to focus on the doping. I was trying to focus on making the point that you're really talented. And I, I appreciate the point. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's something that Chris Freeman said about you as a teammate and a team captain. He said, quote, he's a natural choice as a team captain. He's easygoing, but he's a fierce competitor. Mainly what Carl does for the team is he's someone everyone likes and can talk to. And he just loves being on the road. I've never known anyone, anybody who loves it like he does. Two thirds of the team gets in some hotel. And after two weeks, we're going stir crazy with Carl. You give him the New York times and a pair of skis and he's happy. End quote. <laughs> I personally really loved and continue to love travel as well. I think it makes a big difference, not only to yourself, but also to your teammates when you were happy and comfortable when traveling. Can you talk about how this was for you? I, I did like the, the traveling around um, and I was in a, you know, in a great, you know, stage to do that. I, I didn't, I didn't need to have a phone. I didn't even need to have a computer. Um, I could just travel and, and race. And um, I wasn't paying rent anywhere, <laughs> travel all winter and then travel all summer. Um, I, for some reason it just, it worked for me. And, and it was true. If I, if I could get the, uh, you know, the Tribune that that's the, the international New York times and get on the train. Oh, great. I, I loved it. Cool. And exploring new towns too, you know, yeah. whether it was on a bike or on skis or just running around, uh, it, it was always fun. Absolutely. I, I agree. After you retired from ski racing in the spring of 2006, 
You went to law school at the University of Utah and also served with USSA, USSS now, Board of Directors, and USADA Board of Directors. Was this a good experience being on these boards? I think oftentimes in situations like this, you do a bunch of meetings and everything looks good and sounds great, but later you notice that nothing happened and the effort was for naught. Did you feel like you were making a difference and was this time and energy well spent for you? I, I did learn a lot um, from the, the boards. I, was, I think I was only briefly with the USSA board um, and that's back when it was, a, it was a huge board and I don't remember having a sense of having much of a, a voice there and I was only there briefly. And then it was a conflict when I uh, had the opportunity to go on the USADA board and that was a much smaller board. I think it was only 10 people um, and just really interesting, well-qualified people on the board from different sports and business and, and, and backgrounds. And after was eight years on the board, I started to kind of understand, you know, how a nonprofit, you know, organization like that works. And it, and it was interesting. And we went through a lot of really interesting stuff with the doping sagas and Lance Armstrong and, and all that. But um, again, there, there is no, there's no simple answer to, to doping. Um, and we talked about it and worked on it um, as best we can. And I think the USADA approach and what Travis Taggart is doing there is, is great, is everything you can do. Um, talk about it, call people out, um, go, after, go after the big dopers. There's a lot of frustrations involved, uh, but no, I mean, they're, they're doing good work. It, it, it's never going to end, that's for sure. Cool. I'm glad to hear, though. I mean, I've been on a lot of boards, or I've actually avoided being on a lot of boards as well for the, same, for the reason that I'm, I was alluding to. Sometimes you go to these meetings, and you do all this quote-unquote work, and then everyone's kind of got their follow-up assignments, but then a month later, you realize that nothing happened, and there was no change affected. There was no progress made. So I'm glad to hear it wasn't that situation. Yeah, I mean, at first you don't feel like you know what you're doing or you understand what's going on. But, but you know, over the meetings in the years, I did start to grasp, all right, when stuff just was pointless and when something was important. And it, But I think it takes time to figure that out. Yeah, for sure. So, Carl, looking back at your ski racing career, is there anything that you would do differently were you to do it again? And is there something that you think you did particularly well? I wouldn't get behind that Russian on the downhill about the fam in 2003. Um, I mean, boy, I mean, we learned from our mistakes, you know, with, with hindsight, sure, there's a lot of things I'd love to, to try a different way and, and see if it stretched a good, a good, uh, you know, a good part of the season out longer or turned, avoided a bad, uh, a bad downturn in a season. But for the most part, um, I don't see how it could have changed much. I think had an unconventional approach, but it, it actually worked for me and I think did work to my benefit. Is there anything you feel like you did especially well? Uh, for the most part, I, I enjoyed every race and every venue and I didn't, I didn't get too focused on any one um, period in the season or event or something like that. I think that's a real risky uh, approach. Um, I mean, when you've got season after season after season of, you know, World Cup racing or world championships or things like that. Um, you just got to really take advantage of the opportunities you get all along the way. I agree. 
cool. I like that. So let's talk about your current life. You have served as the public defender for Stratford County for the last 12 years. Basically, this is the county that is just inland from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Their reputation, at least from the movies and TV shows, is that public defenders are generally the least talented and able lawyers, and you'd be better off with your Uncle Vinny representing you. I know you, and if I ever messed up in Stratford County, I'd be so excited to have you defending me, no question about it. Have you ever thought about going into private practice, or what is it that keeps you working in the public defender's office? Mm. Um, I, I do love those movies with like the old washed up attorney, you know, um, but that's, uh, it's certainly not the case with the, the New Hampshire uh, public defender. Um, it, it's just, I'm fortunate in it to be in a really good program, great office full of attorneys and, and support staff. So, um, you know, we work hard and, and we also take a lot of pride in being very effective. So, um, you know, that's, that's just a, a stereotype that's out there. Um, what was the rest of the question? Well, actually, I wasn't trying to make the point that public defenders are a bunch of crappy lawyers. I was saying, first off, I know you're a fantastic lawyer. I know you as a person. Mm. I know you're super competent. I know you, you're invested. So that was my first point was I'd be lucky or anyone would be lucky to have you as a lawyer. And the second is what's kept you from going into private practice? Oh, I, I mean, I really like the, the being a, a public defender because I've got I mean, yeah, I've got a big, a big caseload, but it's not crazy. I can still make sure I'm focusing on each case and, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of trials. I've got everything from, you know, a double homicide to a juvenile uh, case on my, on my, my load right now. And it's competitive, you know, we're in there doing battle every day um, in court in front of judges. A lot of it's by video and phone, but we're, we're in court now some working with, interesting people. And by that, I mean the, the defendants and the clients right up to my, my fellow attorneys. And, and I do like, you know, figuring out the, the, the legal angle in a case or figuring out some aspect of, you know, my client's story or the situation that, that we, can, we can work to our advantage, or I can explain to the judge uh, that might get a, a better outcome or a different outcome than, um, than he might have gotten otherwise. Uh, it's it's tremendously challenging and, and interesting work. So here's a question for you. Do you think to be a public defender, it's a good thing to have the kind of personality where you automatically give people the benefit of the doubt, the kind of person that sees the good in other people as compared to a prosecutor who might be more of a cynic and the opposite? You know, is there a is there a personality type that's more suited one as compared to the other? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think, um, I wouldn't say cynical, but, but it, it, you know, I, I wouldn't say, um, a, a public defender is necessarily going to go in believing everything <laughs> he hears. Um, you know, we, we learn a lot. We can cut right through the, the crap and, and give, you know, good advice because we've, we've heard it all before. Um, and I do like, you know, going up against um, the, the prosecutors. Uh, a very different mindset from somebody who wants to, um, you know, may measure success by putting somebody in jail or in prison uh, versus trying to, to get somebody out. Um, and being a public defender, you know, we get, a, we get assigned cases. We, we take the cases we're given and it's, it's people who can't afford to go out there and, and get private counsel. 
going out there and, and hustling clients and, and customers. And I don't mean hustling in a, in a bad way, but I mean, you, you've got to be interested in marketing um, and, and going out there and getting business if you go into private practice. Um, whereas as a public defender, um, we got plenty of, uh, plenty of work so we can focus on the, on the work. So in 2011, talking about your current job, you said, quote, the whole goal here is to serve my clients. I'm part of a system that has all kinds of problems and issues, but it's very engaging in real life in the community. I do find that rewarding that I am able to be effective in something and it is not about how fast I can ski and ride my bike, end quote. It sounds like this job is giving you some real purpose and meaning, and that you are truly serving your community for the greater good. I, I was definitely looking for something different after racing for so long. And, um, and it, it's hard to, um, to, to give up racing and, the, and that lifestyle. Uh, so I was definitely uh, looking for something that would be engaging. Um, and, and law school was that, and then being a public defender, um, has definitely uh, been that. It, it's very different uh, in terms of uh, lifestyle, but in terms of the actual competitive nature of, of the work, in that sense, it, it, it is still, um, I guess it's, it's competitive in, in the way that competing was in skiing or bike racing. So at, that's, at the same time, you also said, quote, it's, also, it's almost like preparing for a big race, but much more nerve wracking, which is interesting. Yeah. You have to get up for, or in a sense, compete against someone in the courtroom. It's a good sign when you're an, enough, when you are enough to get anxious about something. End quote. Have you found that the skills you developed in preparing for competition and then competing have served you well in your career? Yeah, I guess I, I would say, it, you know, there's that, that sense of, of nerves and, and preparing for a long period of time and doing a a long period of time and doing a ton of hard work. And then, then you've got to really um, perform or compete uh, effectively in, in real time. There's no going back and, and, and fixing it um, when you're you know, in court or in trial or in something like that in front of a jury. So in that sense, it's, it's kind of similar. I think it's prepared me well because as an athlete, you know, we lose a lot. <laughs> you've got to deal with um, not doing well and being disappointed, being defeated, being, um, you, you just don't win that often uh, as, a, as an athlete. And I think that's important to, to understand that there's, there's more to it than that. It's, you know, it's the way you do it and being able to deal with that and come back and, um, and then take your, your victories where, as they come and, and appreciating them. So I guess that served me well. So switching gears, what do you know now that you wish that you had known when you were 18? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I didn't know anything when I was 18. Jeez. <laughs> um, oh, there are 18-year-olds listening to this that right. are um, waiting, waiting I'm just, anxiously to hear your answer. I am so thankful that I had the the space and the time and the support to, to screw up um, and, 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 and be able to come back and, and try again and keep doing it. Um, and I was just really fortunate to, to be in a, 
place where I had that kind of support and space to, to screw up and come back uh, and, and keep learning and figuring stuff out. Um, because at 18, it's, it's pretty hard to take advice. You're going you're gonna to hear what you want to hear <laughs> and you'll probably figure it out the hard way. Um, and you just hope that people are, are forgiving and understanding. Cool. Yeah. Do you have any general advice for a young aspiring ski racer, a mistake to avoid or something to prioritize? Uh, don't get behind the Russian. We covered that. Ever. Uh, Ever. <laughs> it's not worth the draft. Uh, I guess, you know, engage where you are in the, in the, the whole, uh, the whole process, whether it's, you know, the, the training days, the travel, um, or the races, whatever level or, or venue you're at. Um, but I'm very suspicious of anybody that has like, a you know, gives out advice or sounds like an expert because as soon as you say it, then you, you think of, well, that's, that's not, that's not going to be good for that person or that wouldn't have been right in this situation. So I guess I'd, I'd take anybody that that's giving advice or says they know what they're doing or what you should do. I'd, I'd be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't need to tell you that. And then you just blew it up. <laughs> uh, figure it out yourself. I guess there, there's, there's my advice. I like that. <laughs> what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Hmm. I don't have that many surprises anymore. Um, I'm getting back into skiing. I've been, um, I've been skiing on the weekends. Uh, we rented a place. Uh, I've got a five-year-old daughter now and she's just getting into to skiing, going up the lift for the first time. Um, that is a blast. Um, so I'm look, I'm, I'm getting back into skiing. That, that might be a surprise. <laughs> okay. Last, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? No, no. Right. I, I'm suspicious of any mantras. <laughs> it's never that simple. There you go. <laughs> Talk about engaging where you are or in whatever situation you're in, please. That, that's a good one, yeah. <laughs> Talk about it, what does it mean? Give an example. What does it mean? Um, well, I guess it's, it, that's, that's where I'm at right now, where I, I, I can get a weekend to go skiing because there's good snow up in, in Jackson where I've been skiing. Um, I went out and did a, a two and a half hour ski loop and it was just, it, it was awesome over the weekend. Um, and then I got to go out and ski with my daughter too. So um, yeah, it, it doesn't get any better than that. You say this is where you're at, but some one of the things you said was a mistake to avoid when you're on the World Cup year after year is to don't focus too much on any one event during the year, but just work on and you know take advantage of every World Cup. You know, the opportunity to compete against the world's best and to compare yourself on any given day against the best in the world is a unique opportunity that should be savored and, and used. Yeah. And so that has to do with, I don't wanna use these cliche words and it'll blow the whole thing up and you're gonna turn off, but you know, <laughs> engaging in, in, in yeah. and another, another example that is your love of travel, like my love of travel, as compared to being like this hotel sucks, I'm looking forward to the next stop or going home. Instead of that, you're living today 
and, and enjoying whatever it is you're doing, you know, simple pleasures, being just, just living today. I think there's a lot of wisdom and the fruits of that bring a lot of good things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good approach for, for whatever you're doing. Um, um, but, but this is for you. This is coming right. from you. I'm taking this from our conversation and you seem to be referring to this a lot. So I'm trying to put some words in your mouth. It sounds good. It sounds good. No, I mean, you, you just, you don't know when that, you know, that race you're going to have is going to be the best race you ever had. So, so savor it when you're doing it. Um, and, and don't, you know, don't put all your, um, your hopes on any one particular event or time period or anything like that. Cause, um, well, that's a recipe for, for disappointment. Cool. Carl, you really made your mark on American, American Nordic skiing. Uh, to me, you're, you're one of the bigs. If you look at the, our history, our country's history, this, we've had quite a few, but um, you're a special figure in U.S. Nordic skiing. I'm proud to have spent so much time with you over the years and to have been friends. I'm confident that you serve and assist your local community with as much class and tenaciousness as you exhibit as a ski racer. And I wish you the best. And I thank you for doing this interview with me. Well, I, I thank you for doing these interviews. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back through and, and look through the list. As I was telling you before, I saw the Rick Capala one and I had to just watch that. <laughs> it's great seeing um, some of these uh, characters from, from skiing past and current. I need to watch some of the more current stuff. So thanks for doing the interviews. Yeah, well, you're welcome, of course. Um, so thanks again. <laughs>